Thank you, Danny. And it's, again, it's uh, good to see you. I'm glad you're here this morning. GCF exists to glorify God through gospel-centered worship, evangelism, discipleship, and community. When we think about discipleship and discipling, that's really what's happening here. One of the things, one of the joys as we gather corporately is that we continue to make disciples and strengthen disciples and encourage disciples. And that's, that's what's happening in a broad sense this morning. One of the more simpler definitions of discipleship or discipling is talking about the things that really matter. Talking about the things that the Lord would really want us to talk about, the sticky, thorny, sometimes even messy issues of life. And so we endeavor to do that here, not just on a Sunday morning, but in our home groups and throughout the week. One of the thorny, sticky issues of life has to do with money. And so uh, it's okay if, if you slept through that this morning or you missed it. I want to encourage you. This is just a, a nice way of me to invite you to come to adult Sunday school. Uh, 8.45, we're talking about money, uh, a really a, a biblical look at money. That really is an issue of discipleship. So I want to encourage you to come to that. Uh, kids, children, parents, uh, we have uh, children's Sunday school as well. And so again, if you weren't able to come today, want to invite you, you can jump in next week, 8.45 uh, for adults right here in the sanctuary. If you have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Mark as we jump back into our series that began a while ago. Uh, Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through uh, really chapter 9, verse 1 this morning. If you're able to, please stand. <clears throat> As I read, Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 31. Mark 8, 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if any would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. Our great God and heavenly Father, you sent your son Jesus to this world to give us life, to bring us life. And Jesus, we remember your words, John chapter 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Lord, certainly there are some here this morning that know of that abundant life, that maybe are experiencing that, and we praise, praise you for that. But we also know, Lord, that Perhaps there are many here who who are not quite sure what that means, not quite sure how to to have that kind of life. So Lord, be gracious to us, I pray. We certainly know that we cannot figure out this life on our own and we dare not try apart from you. So we turn to you and return to you and continue to turn to you, O God, the giver of life. I pray that your spirit would work in every heart here today. Help us more than anything to see Christ, our Savior, our Messiah, our true King, and our God. 
Be pleased to do this, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's all about me in 2023. I like that it rhymes. I'm thinking about copywriting that. Maybe put it on some t-shirts. It's all about me in 2023. I'm probably not likely to, well, I did just say it out loud, but just to you, so keep that a secret. You're probably not likely to hear that in conversations this week. You're probably not going to drive around the valley and see that plastered on a billboard. But is it true? I mean, it would, it would be hard to argue otherwise in many ways. I mean, this is the time of the year for change. This is the time of year to think about how we want to improve our lives. This is the time of year to think about what can I do differently this year than last year so that maybe I'll start finally living this year or living in a new way. We call those resolutions. We call them wise habits. We call them good things that we try to do to improve our lives, and we all have them. So 2023 is finally the year that we exercise more, that we eat healthier, that we get more sleep, that we stress less, that we take a multivitamin and we take the stairs. And as Christians, we might add a few things to that list. In 2023, I want to read the Bible more. I want to read more consistently. I want to pray more. I want to be more joyful. I want to be less irritated, less discouraged, and so on and so forth. We all have some idea this morning about how we want to grow and change, how we want to improve our lives this year. Jesus also has a plan for you. He actually does have a plan for your growth, for your maturity, for how he wants you to change this year. He has a plan for your great joy and for your great blessing And in case you are wondering, that plan doesn't begin every morning with you staring into the mirror and walking away thinking, it's all about me in 2023, or some variation thereof. No, in fact, brothers and sisters, the truth is Jesus' plan for you, plan for us, plan for your growth, for your maturity, for your blessing and joy sounds altogether different. It looks altogether different because it is altogether different. Jesus says, come and die. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus says, come to me, follow me, and be willing to die. That's not exactly a culture-friendly message, is it? I mean, in fact, it's, it's completely counterculture, and, and even within a good doctrinal church like ours, for which I, I hope we're thankful for, it's, it's not exactly a message that many of you want to hear. Come to Jesus and be willing to suffer and be willing to die. Frankly, I, I, I would love to get up here week after week and preach something different. In some ways, that would make my job a lot easier and in a whole lot of ways make it a lot harder. We are largely averse to suffering, allergic to pain. Some of us want to avoid discomfort at all costs. So, sure, I'd I'd love to get up here week after week and say that the, the good news of the gospel is come to Jesus and all of your problems will just magically go away. Come to Jesus and he'll make your life better. Come to Jesus and you won't have to deal with cancer. Come to Jesus and... Guaranteed, your family will remain intact. Come to Jesus and you'll never lose a job or a friend or a home. Come to Jesus and enjoy the view from the top. So you don't have to worry, again, about worries or depression or sadness or grief. It just sort of magically disappears. You know, there's no easy button For Christians, I am quite certain that I have tried to find that, and it just can't. And there was no easy way out or easy life for Jesus either. So when Jesus, in a text like ours this morning, the true king, and I trust for many of you, when Jesus, your true king, comes and says to you, come to me and die, well, we need to pay attention to that. Now, our text here in Mark chapter 8 is about death and life. It's about dying and living, and really the connection between the two. 
And the connection between the two brothers and sisters is actually fairly simple. In dying, that's actually when you begin to truly live. So the the question that I want you to consider this morning, the question that every one of us absolutely must consider is do you really want to live? Do you really want to learn to live this year? Jesus says come and die and then you're well on your way to living. So we're never, we're never really going to understand Christianity, and we're never really going to understand the good news of the gospel until we actually understand that the Christian life is dying so that we might live. It's losing now in order to win. It's always the cross before the crown. It's, it's death now so that we can experience eternal life. Later, it's suffering in the here and now for a glory that is to be revealed in due time. And that's often what's referred to by many theologians in years past as the scandal of Christianity. Some, some refer to it as the great scandal of Christianity. And the scandal is that the only way to truly live is by first coming to Jesus and dying. The scandal that is Coming to Jesus in faith costs you nothing, yet it costs you everything. And there are actually two such scandals here in our text in Mark chapter 8. So we want to look at both of those this morning. The first is the scandal of the cross, the scandal of Jesus, the suffering and rejected Messiah. And the second scandal is, is really the scandal of discipleship, of, of what it means to actually follow this suffering Savior. What does that entail? What does that look like for people like us? So if all of this right now is still maybe a bit puzzling for you and you're still trying to connect the dots and put the pieces together, that is okay. Really glad you're here. You're in good company because that's where Peter was at. And by extension, all of these disciples here in Mark chapter 8. We have to understand that Mark chapter 8 is really a transition chapter here in the gospel of Mark. Up to this point, the first eight chapters of Mark, Mark's focus has been to answer the fundamental question that he has posed time and time again in the first eight chapters. And that question has been, who is Jesus? Who is this guy? And our answer, Mark's answer, is that Jesus is the true king. He is, in fact, the very son of God. And so we've seen that in our studies, mainly through all the miracles that Jesus has, has performed. Jesus is doing things. Jesus is saying things that, that only God can do and say. And so we've seen Jesus cast out demons and calm storms and heal lepers. Who but God can do that? He's the true king. And you may recall that in the few verses preceding this text, Peter gets that. Peter understands that. He, he says this, in this great confession that we looked at weeks ago, you, Jesus, are the Christ. And yet, as we find out today, Peter didn't quite get it all. The, his understanding was partial. It was incomplete. He, he didn't fully understand what Jesus was about to do as the Messiah. He's still putting all the pieces together. And so the focus for Mark then, in the second half of the gospel here, moves from Jesus the miracle worker to Jesus the suffering Messiah, who will lay down his life for sinners. And so the the dominating question in the second half of Mark is, what kind of Messiah is Jesus? And our answer is that he is a Messiah who will willingly, voluntarily, in obedience to God the Father and with great love, die on a cross for pitiful, wretched people. Now for Peter and Peter's pragmatism and pragmatic mind, this is mind-blowing for him. That does not compute at all for Peter. Let me read again verses 31 through 33, and he, that is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. 
And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. So here we have the first scandal here in our text. It's really the scandal of Jesus, the suffering Messiah. And I want you to notice here what Jesus does. Right after he hears this, in many ways, a very profound confession and profession of faith from Peter, one of his disciples, immediately after he hears that, what does Jesus do? He begins to teach all his disciples. And he taught them how? Plainly. In other words, clearly, boldly. Cogently, and you might think, well, why? That's just a deal. Why is that in there? Why did Mark put that in there? Why is that so important? I mean, that's what good teachers do, right? Master teachers teach clearly so that their students understand. Well, in many places in Mark's gospel, Jesus has not taught his disciples or the crowd or the people all that plainly. Remember the parables. In many different instances, Jesus told these stories, almost these fanciful stories, and. Half the people there were scratching their heads thinking, what in the world are you talking about? I don't get that. I don't understand what you're talking about. Some got the point. Many did not. Many remained outsiders. A few took it to heart. But here, Jesus doesn't do that. There's no story. There's no parable. There's no illustration. Jesus taught his disciples plainly and clearly. There was to be no confusion as to what Jesus was about to do. There was to be no confusion as to his primary mission about what kind of Messiah he really is. So Jesus spoke plainly. Peter, and by extension, the disciples heard plainly, and that was precisely the problem. Peter didn't like what he heard. He didn't like what Jesus, where Jesus was going. Because Jesus spoke plainly that the Son of Man... Jesus himself, must suffer and be rejected and be killed. Again, mind-blowing, earth-shattering, a Messiah that suffers, a king that dies. Peter really didn't have a category for this. And in fact, many of the Jews had zero categories for this, even though their scriptures taught this. We're thinking of Psalm 22 or Zechariah 9 or certainly Isaiah 53. So that perhaps there's a bit of selective reading on their part. But the Jews in the first century, in large part, had very, very broad expectations for their Messiah. They thought he would be the son of David. Yes, he would come from God. He would usher in God's kingdom. He would fight Israel's battle. He would defeat its enemies. He would rule and reign victoriously. So they were thinking largely in terms of a guy like King David, the the greatest king that Israel had. This is exactly what King David do. He subdued his enemies. He fought. He was victorious. They could see him ruling and reigning on his throne. That's what the Messiah is going to be like. What fed these messianic expectations and certainly what Peter has on the brain here are It's more a text like Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with clouds of heaven, there came from one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So this figure from Daniel is exalted, ruling. Multiple times there we read of dominion and glory and honor, and he's establishing an everlasting kingdom. It's, it's a beautiful picture, breathtakingly beautiful, of God ruling and reigning on his throne. And this son of man in Daniel, that Messiah, is victorious. He subdued all the enemies. But Jesus, in identifying as the very Son of Man, and that's what the first half of Mark's gospel has taught us, Jesus has just taught them plainly, clearly, that in fact he must suffer, that he must be rejected, and that he must die. And he must suffer and be rejected and die at the hands of the highest 
ruling Jewish authorities. We read there of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. That is kind of like the trifecta of evil for Jesus. I mean, those are three groups of guys that they didn't like each other at all. In fact, you could say they even hated each other. They didn't socialize with each other. They're not sending each other Christmas cards. But what they had in common was their hatred and absolute disdain of Jesus. And so they were united in their absolute hatred of Jesus. Just for comparison's sake, and this will fail, but if we look at the the highest three levels of government in our land. We might think of the president, might think of Congress, and the Supreme Court. And all three of them, maybe they're not hanging out on Friday nights either, which they're probably not. But they hate you, all three of them. And the president comes out and says, I hate you and you need to be killed. And Congress agrees and the Supreme Court passes a law saying, you need to be killed. That's what's going on here with Jesus. Now, Peter doesn't know everything here, but he does know one thing. In his brain, true messiahs don't die. Like, real messiahs are not supposed to die. So he tells Jesus exactly that. Verse 32. Peter rebukes Jesus. And then Jesus, seeing now that all the other disciples just moved a little bit closer... He then rebukes Peter. Verse 33. It would be, it would just be really, really hard to think of a worse day in life than the day when Jesus calls you Satan. Like we have hard days, we got dark days, maybe even this last week. But for Peter here, this just got dark really, really fast. Now, you might read this and even think, well, come on, Jesus, like, cut Peter a break. I mean, the guy's just trying to, he's doing the best he can, and he's a spokesperson for the disciples. He's kind of taking one for the team. What? Like, do you have to call him Satan? Like, couldn't you, couldn't you come up with some other words that would communicate? Just like, hey, Peter, you're a bit off. Why, why that phrase? Why would Jesus say this? And here's the context. And remember in Mark chapter 1, we looked at the devil who tempted Jesus, took him out to the wilderness. And, and, and really, in, in Matthew chapter 4, uh, there's, a, there's a more of a, a, a fuller account there. And so in Matthew chapter 4, on that third temptation, Satan takes Jesus to the high mountain. And basically, Satan says to Jesus, look around, Jesus. All this can be yours. I can give you everything. You can rule, you can reign, you can have dominion and power. All this can be yours. All you got to do, Jesus, is just bend the knee to me. Just this once. That'll be enough. Just this once. Bend the knee to me. Worship me. All this can be yours. Satan was saying to Jesus, I got a better way for you. Take the easy way, Jesus. I can get you there without suffering. All you have to do is worship me. And Jesus says, be gone, Satan, Matthew chapter 4. Get away, Satan. It's the, almost the exact same phrase in the original language that Jesus uses here in Mark 8. It's very, very similar. So again, why would Jesus say that? Because Peter, in this moment, is actually speaking the words of Satan. Because Peter, in this moment, is saying to Jesus, you don't need to suffer. You're, you're the Messiah, You're the Christ. There's another way, Lord. There's another path. Take this one. You can get there, Lord, without suffering. And Jesus says to Peter, you're tempting me. You don't really understand who I am. You don't understand what God has called me to do. You're only thinking in earthly terms. Brothers and sisters, before we even think about following Jesus, we're going to get to that here, what, what it means, that the scandal of discipleship, we have to actually first understand who it is that we're actually following or seeking to follow. Do you really understand the Messiah, your Messiah that you're actually trusting in? Do, do you understand his nature? Clearly, 
Jesus is a different kind of Messiah. He's a different kind of king. If you're looking for a Messiah that you can manipulate, that you can control, that's not Jesus. If you're looking for a Messiah that will kind of give you everything that you want because you want to live a good life here and improve your life, and he'll come through for you. You just got to wait. That's not Jesus. Jesus is a different kind of king. Our hero willingly suffered and died on the cross. Not because he committed any sins, but for our sins. He was hated and despised and rejected by the most powerful people alive in that day. And yet it was his cross that actually secured our salvation. That's why, brothers and sisters, Satan hates the cross of Christ. Satan hates the cross of Christ because it spells his demise. It spells doom and defeat for him. And in this moment, Peter hates the cross of Christ because in his mind it signals Jesus' demise and defeat and doom. And what Peter didn't fully grasp yet, what the disciples didn't really understand yet, that the, was that the ultimate battle for Jesus was not against the Romans. It wasn't against the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. It wasn't against any other man or any other government. But his ultimate battle was against the prince and the power of the air, the devil, sin, and death itself. And so anything or anyone that turns Jesus from the cross, that devalues the cross, that minimizes the cross, is actually doing the work of Satan. He's doing the work of Satan. The cross continues to be a stumbling block for many of us. If you have Muslim friends, the cross of Christ is a a humongous stumbling block. They, They cannot conceive that Allah would somehow die for people, much less that Allah would die for sinners. It is inconceivable. It doesn't make any sense. You can't get there. It defies logic. It defies human reasoning. And yet, brothers and sisters, it is to the glory of God and the glory of gospel. I mean, our Christian faith is based on the fact that this is exactly what Jesus did. That our king died for convicts, all of us. That our Savior suffered for schmucks like us. Do you really understand the God that you are trusting in? You may not hate the cross. You may not be as brazen as Peter was here to rebuke Jesus to his face. But it doesn't mean that you and I still don't stumble over the cross and stumble about the cross. Lord, I don't want to forgive this person. I've already forgiven this person. How many times, Lord, do I have to forgive this person? Lord, if 2023 is not all about me, well, then when? When do I get a break? When can I catch a break? Or, Lord, it sure seems like my cross is a lot heavier and harder than hers or than his. What's up with that? The first scandal here, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus, the true Messiah, the true King, must suffer, be rejected, and die. He carried his cross. And if you and I are to follow Jesus faithfully, sincerely, obediently, well, it means that we also must carry our cross. And that's the second scandal here we read in our text here in Mark chapter 8. And it's really that scandal of discipleship, of of what it means to follow a crucified Savior. And the scandal is it's, it's easy to come to Jesus, but it's hard to follow him. It's easy to come to Jesus, but it's hard to follow him. Jesus says, come and die. And then well, then you will begin to truly live. This is what Jesus means in verse 34. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
I mean, Jesus means business here. He's, he's not joking around. If Jesus walked the road of suffering, of rejection, of agony, eventually of an agonizing and excruciating death, well, why would we be surprised then if, if we don't face similar things? We ought not be surprised if we face even worse things. And here's why. Our discipleship is modeled after Jesus' messiahship. Let me say that again. Our discipleship is absolutely modeled after Jesus' messiahship. And so once we begin to understand that, brothers and sisters, then we begin to understand that there is absolutely no limit to what Jesus can ask of you. There's no limit to what Jesus can actually demand of you and me, of all of us who want to follow him because we really want to live. Jesus here is not talking about the garden variety of suffering and rejection that perhaps we've all experienced to some degree, but he's really talking about the price of suffering that comes from following him, following a crucified savior. In the first century Roman world, carrying your cross, that wasn't just a metaphor for, hey, if you're going to follow Jesus, be willing to go through some hard times. If you're going to follow Jesus, be willing to face some awkward stares. You might be excluded from a certain things. Maybe you don't get that promotion. Maybe you'll be ridiculed a little bit. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Carrying your cross meant carrying your coffin. Because the cross meant death. And so I'm not trying to be alarmist here or, or, or overly dramatic. But it's like Jesus is saying here, okay, if you're going to be my disciple, you've got, you got to know what, what's at stake here. If you're going to follow me, you need to deny yourself and you need to carry your coffin or carry the noose that they're going to hang you on or carry the gun that they're going to use to shoot you. I mean, that's... That's pretty serious business, isn't it? And I don't know that it gets any more serious than that. And so the question then is, are you really really willing to follow Jesus in that way? Am I really willing to follow him if that is indeed what that looks like? What following him looks like? I don't want to suffer. And I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands. Who here really wants to suffer? I don't like suffering. And the Truthfully, the, the small amount of suffering that maybe I have endured in this life is, is pretty small. I think it's probably true for most of us here. But Jesus says, come to me. Come to me as you are, but don't stay as you are. Come to me, deny yourself, and carry your cross. So that kind of Self-denial, the denial of self, really what he means there, it's death to self. Death to my needs, death to my desires, death to my rights, death to my wishes. That kind of death, that does not come naturally for any of us. In fact, that kind of death only comes through and by the agency of the Holy Spirit and operation in your life, the supernatural grace of God the kindness of God. That kind of Christ-exalting, God-honoring self-denial, that death to self that we're reading about here, that, that's always a, an important topic in any premarital counseling I do. It's also an important topic in much marital counseling I do. If you're married here, I think you can probably relate to this. If selfishness is really the number one joy killer in marriage, and I actually believe it is, then death to self is the remedy. What a great gift if you're married that you can give to your spouse this afternoon to die to yourself. And so in premarital counseling, we'll talk about that, and I'll usually ask a question, and of course, this love-struck couple in front of me, they don't really want to talk about death and dying. Why would they? And I get it. I was there once. I have zero recollection of anything that landed on my heart. I really wish I would have paid more attention. Becky wishes I would have paid more attention. But I'll ask them, well, what do you, 
you know, tell me what you think about it. How, how do you get a godly marriage? Like, it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't just poof, magically happen. So what are the components of a godly marriage? And so I'll usually hear things like, well, you know, I think we have to have common interests, and I think we should, you know, set aside time to have date nights and uh, go on vacations, and, you know, we have shared interests. All those have a time and a place, certainly. But then we talk about, well, actually, the secret, and it's not really a secret, but the secret to a godly marriage is, is death, daily death to self for the sake of your spouse. It's daily dying to your own needs, daily dying to your desire to assert your rights, to put your spouse's needs ahead of your own. God will honor that. That's how how any godly marriage will last, frankly. That's also how any godly marriage will thrive. And so we talk about how none of us like to die to ourselves. It doesn't happen naturally. And then I'll usually say something like this. If, you know, if if you're, if you're really unwilling to do that or you're not really too hip on this kind of daily death or you kind of have a more romanticized version of what earthly marriage will be like, then you shouldn't get married. Or at least wait. And that's when they really start paying attention. And so then we'll talk about that. And one guy, he, he looked at me, he looked at his fiance, and he said, okay, I just want to get this straight. So you're telling me I need to be willing to take a bullet for my soon-to-be wife. And he's like, of course I'll do that. No problem. And I said, you know, actually, I'm not all that interested if you're willing to take a bullet for your soon-to-be wife. What I'm actually more interested in, are you just willing to take the garbage out to serve her? Like on Tuesday night, when you're tired and you don't want to do that. That's the kind of daily death that's at stake here. Be willing to die to your needs for her sake. Deny yourself. The truth is, the happiest married people I know, and I'm thankful to know some very happily married people, They are the ones who, by God's grace, are doing exactly this. Learning to daily die to themselves. Now, let me just close the loop here. If you're married, you may be hearing this and thinking, wow, that sounds good. I've been waiting for her to die all the time. (laughs) And you're you're looking at her thinking, yeah, if she would start dying, that'd be great. And so what's happening is neither one of you are willing to die. And so what's happening is your marriage is dying. That's the only thing that's dying. So you get a stalemate. Well, who's going to go first? Let me just say, I mean, there's really only one way to break that stalemate. Yes, pray. Yes, be humble. But they need to act. And guys, this is on you. Husbands, this may be the one act. It's an important act. But if there's one thing, and I'm saying this for my own heart first, believe me. If there's one thing that you can do this afternoon, is find one concrete way to die to yourself. And I am not saying that your wife is going to throw a ticker tape parade for you. She may not even notice it. But the Lord will. And he will bless. It's an act of worship before the Lord, guys. Break the stalemate. The plain point here of Jesus in verse 34. Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, don't follow me unless you're actually really willing to die. Not physically, necessarily, but die to self. Die to your best plan for your life. Die to you thinking and dreaming and strategizing about how you can make all your dreams come true in this life. And that's kind of the problem, isn't it? Because so many of us today, we want Jesus. But we want him on our terms, not his. Yeah, I'll take Jesus as long as he gets me that dream job or he gets me into that school that I really want to go to. Yeah, I'm going to follow Jesus, but first I need to see if he's going to come through for me. He's going to answer that prayer. I'm happy to trust in Jesus. It makes Christmas a whole lot more meaningful. And I've really read that hell is bad and I don't want to go there. So in fact, rather than a Jesus that comes to you and says, come and die to yourself, We want a Jesus that comes to us and says, you be you. You do you. That's what we want to hear. But that's not what Jesus says. And what Jesus says here is not that. And what Jesus says here is not what we hear, because that's what we hear in our world, isn't it? That's the way of worldly wisdom. Get your life and make your life. You deserve it. You get to chart your own course, satisfy yourself, do what makes you happy, grab all that you can get. And what we don't understand is that that pursuit inevitably leads 
to greater selfishness, a deeper desire to look out just for number one, and an entitlement that seeks to take without giving and to live without sacrificing at all. It actually leads away from Christ. It leads away from the cross of Christ. It leads away from God. And so, brothers and sisters, that's why the gospel is such good, sweet news, precisely because it's only in and through the gospel that people like us, that you can absolutely be yourself without being entitled, selfish, or narcissistic. It's only in the gospel that that could happen. Because when you put your faith in Christ, you repent of your sins and you turn to Christ, he gives you a new heart. So no longer then do you need to draw attention to yourself. No longer do you need to perform. No longer do you need to prove you belong, to to prove yourself to others around you. Why? Because you are already approved in Christ. You have a a blood-bought, spirit-wrought freedom to actually be who God, your heavenly Father, has created you to be. The gospel, and it's only the gospel that says, be who you are in Christ, and then you will actually begin to truly live. And we say we want Jesus and we want to follow him, but so often, brothers and sisters, we we fail to count the cost of following him, of what that really looks like, following a crucified Savior. And indeed, there is a cost to following Jesus. I mean, anybody can say they're a Christian, but you don't really believe it unless you are actually willing to walk where Jesus walked, to, to follow the path that he's laid out. So Jesus says, come and die, follow my example, carry your cross in everyday life, and then you will start to actually live. Count the cost. And that's what Jesus teaches us here in the remaining verses, verses 35 through 38. Verse 35, Jesus says, if you lose your physical life for me, well, you will so identify with me that you will actually be saved in the end. But if you save your physical life, in other words, if you put your physical needs and well-being ahead of your allegiance to me, then on that last day, you'll lose your life. Again, hear what I'm saying, church. Anybody can lose their life. People do it all the time. What Jesus is saying here is that if you lose your life for him, for the sake of the gospel, well, you will be saved. You'll be saved in the end. So if you die at age 30, You don't have a whole lot of friends showing up to your funeral. You don't have a whole lot of material possessions. You don't have a whole lot. Look back in 30 years, there's really not a whole lot there to count on. But you have Jesus, well, you have everything for all eternity. On the flip side, if you live to 95 years old and you have amassed wealth and fortunes and thousands of people and heads of state show up to your funeral and applaud and laud you about the life that you lived, but you have rejected Christ, well, you've lost everything and you have nothing for all eternity. That's sobering, isn't it? Count the cost. Verse 36, Jesus says, look, you can get the whole world. People do that all the time. At least try. You can get the whole world, but it comes at a cost. You lose your soul. You forfeit your soul. So you can get the man of your dreams. You can get the woman of your dreams. You might even be able to get the children of your dreams. You can get the house of your dreams. You can get the life of your dreams. But if you have spurned the grace of the gospel and forfeited God's grace, what are you actually left with? What are you left with? Yet people do this every day. And we, as disciples of Jesus, we're not immune from this either. Sometimes sometimes this is how we live. Sometimes we actually do choose short-term satisfaction over long-term spiritual well-being. You can look at the last week of your life as I have painfully looked at the last week of my life to see how that is true. 
There's a word for that. It's called immaturity. Spiritual immaturity. Because at the core of our Christian faith is this godly, God-honoring self-denial. A self-denial, it says no to sinful impulses and impure desires. So it's called delayed gratification. That's how we grow. So we do that by counting the cost, by walking in the way that Jesus walked, carrying our cross, enduring suffering, and accepting hardship, knowing that as we do that, Jesus will keep your soul. He's the only one that can. He will keep your soul secure. Verse 37, Jesus asks a very, very, very good question. What can a man give in return for his soul? In other words, what is your soul really worth? What is it worth to you? Some of you this morning might simply need to be reminded that you actually have one. You have a soul. In other words, you need to be reminded this morning that the sum total of your life is not just what's out here. It's not the image that you project to a circle of network, of friends, of business associate. It's not the image you project on social media, on Pinterest, on Instagram, or TikTok. Your inner life is so much more important than what is out here. Your life is not just out here. True life begins in here, in your soul, in your heart. You have a soul worth saving. Jesus thought so, and he died on the cross and was raised again three days for you, for your soul. Verse 38, Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me, well, I'll be ashamed of him. That's sobering. Now, you might read that at first blush and think, oh, man, he's talking about this last week of my life. He had a, there's a, a runway there. I was, taught, I was supposed to share the good news of the gospel with my friend. I didn't say anything. I wimped out. And because of that, is that, is, is that what this means? Jesus is going to abandon me? That's not what he's saying. Jesus here speaks of a settled, a persistent denial and rejection of him. In other words, you have settled in your heart that the cross is just too hard, that this life it's too hard. It costs too much. That following Jesus in faith is, it might be good for other people. It might be good for parents. It might be good for your brothers and sisters. But it's not good for you that you're going to do your own thing. You're going you're to trust in your own resources. I mean, would you be ashamed if your friends found out that you actually believe in this suffering Messiah? You actually believe that Jesus is who he said he is, and that he did what he said he would do. I mean, if you're too ashamed to, to just be known as a Christian among your family or your friends, or maybe even just too ashamed to even mention his name at all, you're too afraid to bring it up on the football field or in the dorm room or in the classroom or in the boardroom or around the kitchen table, then Jesus will be ashamed to claim you as one of his own. So we must count the cost. Church, the call to follow Jesus like this, faithfully, sincerely, obediently, it's not easy. It, it costs you nothing to come to Jesus, yet it'll cost you everything. It's a hard word. It's a hard word from Jesus. He's not trying to crush you. Jesus doesn't say, come to me, and I'm going to do everything I can in my power to make you miserable for the rest of your life. That's not it at all. But we do need that encouragement. And in fact, verses 9, verse 1, we'll, we'll look at this more next week since our time is gone. But we get a hint of this. Jesus has just taught his disciples this, and then he takes three of his disciples on a mountain, and there's an experience there that will be unforgettable. So I just want to encourage you to come back next week for that unforgettable experience that absolutely changed the disciples' lives they needed to remember who this Jesus really was. So it's not without hope, it's not without encouragement. Jesus says, come to me and die. 
And you might still be here thinking, why on earth would anyone want to do that? Why should I come to Jesus, deny myself, and be willing to take up my cross? It's a simple answer. Because only then will you begin to live. Then you will begin to truly live. Disciples of Jesus are men and women, boys and girls, who are learning from Jesus how to live and how to love. We Christians are people who count the cost. And we say, you know, I may lose now, but that's worth it in order to gain then. I'm going to suffer now. I'm going to learn by the grace of God to gladly embrace suffering now because there is eternal joy then. I'm going to wait now for the joys of tomorrow. I'm going to take up my cross today because there is a crown that is in store for me. There is an inheritance that is coming my way. That's the path that Jesus has marked out for all of us, for anyone who would follow him. It's in dying that you actually begin to truly live. So do you really want to live in 2023? Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, that's a sobering question, and I recognize that that is not one that we can easily answer, move on from, and go about the rest of our day. So Lord, would you give us grace to honestly think about that, to consider even just this last week, not just to consider the ways that we have failed, but to consider the resource we have in you, the help that you give, the grace that you afford, the kindness that you bestow, the compassion that you willingly pour out to people like us. Lord, have your way with us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.